0: they shall walk and not faint from revelation john to the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let's pray together. Everlasting God, we come before you this morning wanting to hear from you. We need to connect with you in profound ways as our hearts are heavy and at times feel very far from you. We ask that during the Sabbath season, your light would break upon us in a profound and fresh way and fill us with great hope, with great joy. And we ask these things, Lord. In your son's name, amen. You know, during this Advent season, we're doing a sermon series titled, His Name Shall Be. His Name Shall Be. And we're looking at the names of God, or how God himself reveals himself to us. The everlasting God, the God most high, the God who provides, the God who is with us, the God who sees us. But this morning, we're going to begin big, you know, metaphysical. We're going to start with the everlasting God. And when we understand God is one who is everlasting, this is a word that is meant to be one of comfort and of incredible hope. And that's what we want to consider this morning. And I want to look at this under three just headings to help us get oriented here. I want us to consider the problem of pain the search for meaning, and an unexpected hope. So the problem of pain, the search for meaning, and an unexpected hope. Because the problem of pain, maybe you don't see the pain in the passage that was read, uh, both of these, but especially we're going to focus our attention on the Isaiah 40 passage, but we have just printed for you the last four verses of Isaiah chapter 40. And, but the chapter begins with some very famous words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Because you see, at the end of Isaiah 39, you read about the judgment of God upon Judah, uh, where Isaiah prophesies to King Hezekiah that the days of the monarchy are actually numbered, and the whole nation, all the people, are going to be carried away to Babylon, into exile. I mean, that's as bad as it gets. And not only that they hear words of greater distress when all the men of the royal family would also be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I mean, this is unthinkable because God's people are left to wonder, how is the monarchy going to continue if all these men are going to be eunuchs? Will there be a son of David who is Messiah? How can you put your hope in what Isaiah prophesied earlier in chapter 9 saying, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God. Because anyone in Israel who heard Isaiah's prophecies of God's just judgment, okay, would have been devastated and could not see a way forward. And dark days were indeed upon God's people. And with that as a background, Isaiah 40 begins with comfort. And God is saying these words to you and me today. Because the rest of the chapter begins to fill out how it is possible to have comfort, have hope, in the midst of tremendous, tremendous pain. And what you begin to find out is this. God surprises us with what he comforts us with. Because it isn't what you expect. It's not a plan detailing how God is going to fix the situation and the timing of it all. Because I don't know about you, that's what I would want to read about. You know, The things I want to know is I want to circle a day on the calendar when everything is going to be made right. And I want an exact plan from God on how this is going to work. I just need to know. And But rather, God reminds them of something else. He says, my hope and my comfort come in this. I'm going to tell you who I am. Because he is a God who has not abandoned his people, although they rejected him. Exile is not going to be the last word for God's people, people whether it's exile in Babylon or the continued spiritual exile of his people. He says, homecoming is a certainty. And how can you know this? Because of who he is, the everlasting God. But I know you're all thinking, that just doesn't feel like it's enough. And this is why in verse 27, you read, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. This is God's people asking the question. And it exposes the frailty of their faith and ours. Because we feel like God doesn't see me or my plight, nor does he care. Because he isn't doing anything about it. You guys following here? I mean, how often do we utter these words on our lips? Where we say, we look at the things that have broken our hearts, left us in despair. And we cannot help but feel God doesn't care. He has grown tired of us. Or he cannot or will not change things. And you think about the relationships in your lives that are broken and you long to mend. The dreams you have for yourself professionally, romantically, that remain just wishful thinking. Or the loss of a loved one. Perhaps wayward children you've been praying for, but there seems to be little to no movement. The injustices you've experienced where your dignity has been taken away from you. The physical pain and chronic illness that you are managing, but it just wears on you. It wears you down some days and you just don't feel like you can even get out of bed. And you say, my way is hidden from the Lord and he disregards me. See, it's a problem of pain. And in the Advent season, we collectively come to grips with the darkness of this and this leads to our search for meaning you see because when you suffer and you experience pain you begin to wonder what is all this for and our search for meaning is often tied together with this problem of pain you know because all of us the bible tells us has a basic orientation to life we figure out how life works we say i get life i understand it i get how god works in the world and life makes sense to me and I'm oriented in a certain direction for God's people, it often goes like this. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. You read this, and you believe God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. And that's true. But this basic orientation is often untested and sometimes overly simplistic, and it's a naive view of the world. That is, if you just do good, everything's going to go well, and if you're bad, well... You're the kid who gets the coal in the stocking at Christmas, you know? And yet, what begins to happen often in life is something just blindsides you. Life hits you over the head. Things haven't gone the way you drew it up. And you find yourself totally disoriented and all the old explanations you held seems cliche. They fall flat and just don't hold up. So verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. We say, why have you forsaken me? I'm lost. And that's the language that emerges when you are completely disoriented and have no idea how you are going to make it through this. It's a profound crisis, existential crisis, because life no longer makes sense. God doesn't make sense anymore in one sense. And you see this in many of the Psalms where it begins with, why, O Lord, or where are you? But in the midst of this, you begin to see God gives his people a way forward through the fog with a new direction and a new orientation. And it is in these moments God whispers words of comfort and he says, consider who I am. Because God is much more complex than you thought. And he keeps saying, I am. I'm going to surprise you. And consider this term, the everlasting God. Think about this for a second. There is no time when he is not. He has never not existed. And this is the God who is coming to you. Through this 40th chapter of Isaiah, he has said, take comfort because this God is coming to save you. And exile is not the end of the story. Your suffering, your disappointments and tears are not the final word because the everlasting God is coming with forgiveness, strength, tenderness. And this is the meaning of verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? You know, Isaiah is almost exasperated. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And whether you're here today because you believe and you come to church each week, or if you are here and not really sure what you believe or why you even are here today, or perhaps you're wrestling with belief altogether, we are asking of God, Can I believe any of this that I just talked about? Does my life matter? Do I matter to you, God? And it is this search for meaning. We're on this search. You know, when the pandemic hit and we went into shelter in place, people around the world were trying to make sense of what's going on. I mean, we were all caught off guard, disoriented. And I remember doing some searches online and I ran across several articles reflecting on Albert Camus' novel, The Plague. So I decided to pick it up and read it because, you know, you can just watch so many hours of Netflix before your brain turns to mush. And uh, you start reading this and you can't help see the parallel to our own lives at the time. The book is set in the city, the port city of Iran, located in French-occupied Algeria. And the city is hit with a bubonic plague. They first see rats dying in the streets, and then people contract this mysterious fever and illness. And the, officially, uh, the officials finally connect the dots that the plague has hit Iran. So there's a lockdown of the city, a quarantine, and people are not allowed to in or out Of the city. No cars, trains, boat get in or out. And as the city goes into lockdown, under the shroud of the plague, we see Iran become this microcosm of what human life looks like under the weight of death. And Camus describes how the citizens of Iran deal with the fact of the plague and their changed life. And early on, people just treat it as another piece of news. You know, they're sitting in the cafe. Talking. Oh, did you read the headline about this mysterious illness and death? Oh, yes, I heard, you know, they opened some special ward in the hospital. Oh, you don't say. I'm sure the authorities are going to handle it. I mean, it's like they're talking about it just like they're talking about the weather. It's nothing to be alarmed about. And the casualness was a way of coping with the nightmare of what was going on in the city. Other characters, they just went about their day and returned to work. You know, they find refuge in their routine, what feels predictable and safe. That's a way of closing their eyes to the reality that the plague, the death is just all around them. But as the weeks and months drag on, there doesn't seem to be any resolution to the situation. And people begin to lose motivation for going into work and going about their day. They start thinking, what's the point of getting out of bed? I mean, Camus even writes that even commerce died of plague in Iran. I thought that's an interesting way of putting it. Except the movie theaters and the wine bars. Because the citizens started saying, you know what? Hey, if this is as bad as it's going to be, I'm going to go watch the latest movie. I'm going to splurge on that exquisite bottle of wine I normally wouldn't and hang out. So business is booming on that side and people begin to pursue leisure, enjoy time with the people they love, and it's almost as if Camus is Camus saying, in a time of pestilence, when human life is under the shadow of death, the only thing that can even come close to bringing meaning is our relationships of love. He tells the stories of husbands and wives that are a bit separated because one spouse is in the city, and the other is outside traveling. He talks about the pain of separation, the desire for reunion, reconciliation. And the only thing that seems to matter is human love. And he takes all of the ways we normally search for meaning in life and places it under the weight of the plague and basically asks us a question. Can these things save us? And initially, it seems like he's saying, yes, it can. But I don't think that's what he's really saying. Because for Camus, life is absurd. There is no meaning. Thus, human love is maybe the only thing you can struggle for. And the novel ends this way. The plague ravages the city. Dr. Rue, the main character, finds some sort of a plague serum. And it begins to be effective. And pretty soon, the plague recedes and the city of Iran starts celebrating because the pandemic has ended. And the last paragraphs go like this. Dr. Rue resolved to compile this chronicle so that he should not be one of those who hold their peace, but should bear witness in favor of those plague-stricken people. And to state what we learn in a time of pestilence. And this is the last paragraph. And indeed, as he listened to the cries of joy rising from the town, Rue remembered that such joy is always imperiled. He knew that those jubilant crowds did not know but could have learned from books that the plague basilisk never dies or disappears for good, that it can lie dormant for years and years in furniture and linen chests, that it abides its times in bedrooms, cellars, trunks, and bookshelves. And perhaps the day would come when for the bane and the enlightening of men it would rouse up its wrath again and send them forth to die in a happy city." The end. And I was thinking, why did I read this book? It's terrible. (laughs) Discouraging. Okay. I mean, the end of the book, you realize, in one sense, he's saying, the plague, we are all carriers of this thing, of death itself. We can't escape it. Life is lived under the weight of this pestilence. The life we know. And the ultimate conclusion he comes to is life is absurd. It has no meaning. And the best we can do is try to love one another while we can. But you know what? For the scriptures, for us, this answer isn't good enough. Isaiah is not going to leave us there. Where can we find meaning in the midst of suffering? Where do we find comfort, hope? And that is the human question and the search we are united by And the season of Advent addresses this with an unexpected hope. And this is my final point. Verse 27. The heart of this is we want God to be permanent, unchanging, stable, and reliable. We need God to be all of those things. Because in the midst of all the change and uncertainty, to be able to look at God and say, you are our dwelling place. You are our certainty. We need God to be from eternal, everlasting to everlasting, who will not grow weary, who will restore us. The problem the Bible raises is this. A God who is eternal is not good news to us unless we somehow know he cares about us. Unless we somehow know that he loves us. How can I ever know this? Is this just wishful thinking? And you might be here and saying, that is exactly why I'm an agnostic. I've no problem believing there's a God that created the universe there is no way for me to know anything about that God or if he cares about me. So I'm an agnostic. Maybe some of you think that and believe that. But if we could know, isn't that the best news that the human race has ever heard? How can we know that God cares for us? And in verse 29, Isaiah says this He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Do you see what Isaiah is saying? If the only way we could ever know whether an eternal God cares for us is if God actually did something. God did something. And in doing something, He showed us His splendor and His beauty and His glory forever and His favor and His love and His concern. And how's God going to do this? Is He going to do it through more miracles so we can see with our eyes that He actually cares? Is he going to send us more prophets so we can hear with our ears that God will not give up on us? Will he send us a new law so that we know how to live under his reign? Will he send us another liberator to free us from bondage or an oppression? How is he going to show us his beauty, holiness, his love, and his favor? God does something unimaginable. Not just more miracles or prophecies or laws or a liberator. In the beginning of the New Testament, here is God on the verge of coming to us himself. The eternal God, the everlasting, the Alpha and the Omega, stepping into time for us. And if that were not enough, God stepping into time for us, he also steps into our grave. And if that wasn't enough, the everlasting God stepping into our grave so that he might step under the curse of his own wrath, the reason why our lives feel meaningless in the first place, and to take that wrath upon himself. You begin to see the hope, verse 31 points to, Wait for the Lord. You know, Kevin talked about this earlier. But they, but they who wait for the Lord, this is verse 31, shall renew their strength. Wait for the Lord. What Isaiah is saying is repeated all over the Psalms, and I'll just give you two verses here. In Psalm 90, verse 14, it says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And it describes the time when we're all in the night and waiting and longing and we're waiting for the dawn to break, that God's steadfast love would wash over us and that would satisfy us. Or Psalm 30, verse 5, talks about weeping may tarry for the night. Again, we're in the night, but we're waiting. And it says, but joy comes in the morning." These beautiful poetic words of the scriptures are telling us something. It's telling us about a hope for some distant, unimaginable morning that would dawn so brightly in that single morning it would satisfy us with God's unfailing love. On that morning it would dawn so brightly that in an instant it would replace each of our days of suffering and sighing and replace each one of those days with a new day of joy and singing. And the psalmist or Isaiah could not have imagined what that morning could have looked like. But you know what? We know. Because there was that one morning when the grave could no longer hold on to Jesus Christ. There was that dawning of that one morning when death had been put to death. When God's curse of His holy justice was completely and finally satisfied and God didn't just replace each of our days of suffering and matched it with a day of joy. But how does the Apostle Paul describe that morning? That morning, our momentary troubles will not even begin to compare with the glory and unmatched beauty that awaits us. See, Isaiah isn't just describing things that going back to the way they were. He's talking about something far greater, something more beautiful, something more glorious that will make all of our sufferings in the world feel like a dream because of the all-surpassing glory that is now ours because of what Jesus has done. That's why we won't be weary or faint, as verse 31 says. You know, how can you know our lives matter? How can you know we mean something to God? that we are significant? The answer of the scriptures is if the everlasting God stepped into time and then stepped into the grave and then stepped under your curse, if God actually did that in history, you know, that means you matter enormously. And if God did that, no matter what disorientation you are facing in life, no matter what has blindsided you and made you question all those uncritical beliefs, no matter what is going on, there's something surprising, shattering, unexpected hope that awaits us because of what Jesus has done this morning, let's not look at just an everlasting God. And let's not look too long and too hard at the frailty of our own lives. But we need to look at Jesus who has risen again for our hope. And Advent tells us Jesus is coming. I mean, this is why we put this Revelation 1 passage here. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Advent tells us This Jesus is coming again. And we look to him and we wait in hope for him. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we ask that um, in the midst of our own suffering and pain, wondering what purpose and meaning our lives have in this world, groping for hope, trying to figure out who you are, we ask that you would meet us in a fresh and profound way during the season of Advent, that you would make the darkness part, that the dawn would break, and that we would find renewed hope in the work that you have done, Lord, that we would experience your compassion and love in a profound way through your Son, Jesus Christ. That's our hope for our community because that is what changes our lives. And we ask the Lord that you would do these things and reveal these things to us and show us that you are the everlasting God, the one whom we can trust. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.